Let me read to you from chapter 5, verse 7. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes, your no, no, or you will be condemned. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. And again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain. The earth produced its crops. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Let's pray, shall we? Lord God, our Heavenly Father, you have so much to teach us. We know that the greatest minds, the largest hearts, the fullest souls in the whole of history have spent lifetimes coming to know you and still felt that you were so awesome, so wonderful, that they had only scratched the very surface of what it meant to know you. So, Lord, as we uh, uh, come to study your word this morning, we are conscious that complete knowledge always eludes us. And yet, Lord, we know by your Holy Spirit you can fill our hearts and minds and souls. Give us new life. Help us to grow, Lord, in the way that you want us to grow. Help us to be new people. So, Lord, today, as every time when we come to study your word, we pray that you would open our hearts and minds and souls and pour yourself into us, Lord, in new measure, that in knowing you more, we would be changed from glory into glory. Come amongst us, we pray, Lord, most urgently, and help us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, when you're a parent of uh, young children, you get used to life being rather disjointed. Paul Fairchild smiling at me there. No sooner have you fallen asleep than you have to wake up again. No sooner have you uh, put a set of clothes on your child than you have to change them again. You start a conversation with your spouse and you find it sort of continues a sentence at a time, sometimes over days between your various jobs as janitor and di diplomat and chef in the house. Life is like that with small children. You just learn to muddle along. Unfortunately, I think life has been a bit like that as we've studied this letter of James. A number of people have said how, how difficult it's been to s follow the thread of the letter because we've been studying it on and off since Easter. There have been a, a number of gaps. Actually, some of the difficulty I think we've experienced is that James himself 
actually is not particularly concerned to develop a very clear, straight, logical argument. His, his uh, letter is very much more like sort of the Old Testament wisdom literature. He's got lots of wise things to say, and he doesn't always put them together in a very closely organized fashion. I think you probably noticed that as we were going through. But it is possible, I think, to get an overall flavor of this letter, to, to, to get a sense of the burden of what James wants to say. And I want us, in this uh, last time that we look at, uh, at James, to try to draw together uh, what we've learned from James over the last few months and uh, see how actually uh, some of his final words that we're going to look at, not every word in the, the end of the chapter, but just, just some key parts here, some of those final words encapsulate some of his major emphases through the letter. So let's uh, think for just a little while about uh, James's overall message. I think you could summarize James's overall message by saying that there are two vital things that he is concerned about. The first thing that he says again and again, one way or another, is that real Christians are new people. whole of the central section of James has uh, focused on how we should live as believers. He speaks an awful lot about our, our attitudes, our attitudes to the rich and poor, for instance. He speaks about our use of our tongues, the most powerful organ in our body, he says. He speaks about our tendency to quarrel, our tendency to be arrogantly self-confident. If you've been listening to the series, all those things will come to your mind. And everywhere, he has this underlying assumption that real Christians are new creations. James is actually so forthright about the importance of, of uh, uh, what he calls works or actions that some people have understood him to say that uh, we need to do good deeds in order to be saved. But actually he's not saying that. Now James, like every other writer in the New Testament, says that we are saved simply by trusting Christ. There is absolutely nothing that you and I can do to pay for the sins that we have uh, done in our lives. We cannot do it. All we can do is trust that Christ paid for, the sin, for our sins. When he died on the cross, when uh, he took the sins of the world onto himself, when he died as a substitute for us, all Christians need to do to be saved eternally is to believe that, to trust that, to trust that our sins are forgiven. But James is also quite clear as well. The people who trust Christ truly are always transformed. They are always new people. You cannot believe that Christ has died for your sins on the cross. You cannot trust him and not be a new creation. Of course, we're not transformed instantly. We're not transformed perfectly in a moment, but we are new people, he says. That's what real faith looks like. As James was describing Abraham's faith uh, earlier on, he uh, described uh, it in various ways. He said, faith and actions work together. They are inseparable brothers. Or faith is made complete by actions. Or, or uh, another time he says, actions fulfill faith. James knows that we can only have real faith if God's Holy Spirit has indwelt us, causing us to trust Christ and at the same time giving us new life. Real Christians, he says, are new people again and again, he says that. But the second thing that James has been saying right throughout this book, which is very important, and which he actually comes to major on again at the end of the book, as he did right at the beginning of the book, is that real faith 
lives with eternity very much in view. And you, you remember, perhaps, right at the beginning, he started with one of his most shocking statements. Chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials, he said. We can't come close to understanding a statement like that if we only look at this life. Trials and sufferings do damage us in this, li in this life. There is no guarantee that uh, uh, everything's going to work itself out beautifully in just a little while in our lifetimes. People die prematurely as Christians. People spend their lives suffering terribly. People are bereaved and hurt and treated cruelly by this world. And uh, by no means does that come to an end in this life. James says your joy, your real joy, if you are a Christian, doesn't come from seeing perfect justice in this world. It comes from looking to the next world. He says the poor, for instance, who have a hard lot, they're already rich from eternity's point of view. They will inherit the kingdom, he says, because of their faith. Chapter 2, verse 5. Or those who suffer severe trials, he says, will uh, are promised the crown of life. Chapter 1, verse 2. Or he says that those who persist as well in unrepentant lives must also face the fact that eternity is a very clear reality. If they do not show mercy, he says, they will not be shown mercy. Chapter 2, verse 13. Rich, oppressive landlords, he says, will face a terrible judgment on the last day. Chapter 4, verse 12 says, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. That's a major theme that James has cannot understand this world, he says. You cannot have real Christian faith unless eternity is very much in your mind, very much before your face. That is where Christian's joy comes from. And that is where the seriousness and urgency of the call of the gospel comes. Because God will come to judge us sooner than we might expect. Real Christians must be changed people, he says, if their faith is to be believable. They must live with eternity in mind. You know, I wonder, especially if you've been here throughout James's letter, have those things really penetrated into your heart? It's far too easy to think just because I believe all is well. James is absolutely clear. The definition of a Christian is not just that they believe. Even demons believe, he says. Now, the definition of a Christian is that they are internally transformed, new people whose belief wells up from that internal transformation. Now, sadly, I think... Far too often, real believers grieve the Holy Spirit because they do not see how vital it is to be transformed and renewed in their lives, as James is uh, calling us to here. But even more tragically than that, sometimes I think people who blithely say, I believe so I am okay, turn out in the end to be opponents of Christ who shudder, as James says, with the demons. But we are magnificently transformed, he says, as we focus on Christ and focus on eternity. We become content through our trials because of the riches that God, God has in store for us. 
We are fearful to do anything which will compromise our eternal joy. We develop a new concern and passion for the lost because suddenly we see so vividly the judgment that is coming. That's what James has been calling us to all the way along. and It needs to penetrate our hearts. It needs to become absolutely central to who we are because there lies true joy, says James. But at the end of his letter, he uh, gives us all sorts of little sketches of a Christian lifestyle which is renewed, and more than anything, which is focused on eternity. I wanted to just draw out a few things from the end of this book to show us why a belief in eternity and change us. James says, first of all, in verses 7 to 12, a belief in eternity affects the way we wait. We wait, he says, patiently. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. It's in Palestine, it rains predominantly in spring and autumn. You can't change that. It's actually evidence that that's been the, the stable pattern for millennia. All you can do, says James, is wait. And farmers know that. So too, he says, in the world as a whole, history rolls on at God's pace. Kingdoms rise and they fall, people come and they go, we are born and we die. Just because God hasn't sorted everything out quite yet doesn't mean he will not do so, any more than a lack of rain in the summer means that there will be none in the autumn. No, he says, when the time is right, God will do his work. Be patient then. Stand firm. Wait for the Lord patiently. But he says, we not only wait patiently, we wait passionately too. Verse 10. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Now, if we hadn't read the lives of the prophets in the Old Testament, we might be tempted to think that James um, sees the prophets as sort of a bit like um, hippies from the flower power era. You remember, you know, peace and cosmic awareness, man, make love, not war, that sort of attitude. But actually, the Old Testament prophets were nothing of the sort. They were fearless, they were bold, brave, outspoken activists. They, they publicly spoke against the authorities of the day. They were imprisoned, they were accused of sedition. Many of them died for their faith. These were passionate men. But James says they were examples of patience. They were examples of patience because never ever did they try to take things into their own hands. They spoke God's words. They lived passionate lives. But they never took up a sword. Never overthrew governments. They passionately lived a life which spoke for God and yet was content to, to let God do his work. That is our example, says James. We wait patiently and passionately. And those passions as well were often, often emotions that they really had to wrestle with. Sometimes you find the prophets slipping into, into deep depression, cursing even sometimes the day that they were born. James mentions one 
Old Testament saint who struggled more than any other in his faith, perhaps. It is Job, verse 11. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance. You've seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And if you want proof that passionate questioning of God is not necessarily bad, then look at Job. Now, here's a man who suffered the loss of his wealth, the loss of his family, the loss of his health. And he was advised by his wife to curse God and die. But he would not do that. But that didn't mean that he just lay down meekly and uh, uh, accepted the unmerited suffering that had come his way from, from the mysterious hand of God. No, he cried out to God. He, he voiced accusations of God, he, uh, uh, to God. He remonstrated with God. He agonized with God. That's the example that James is giving, giving to us. In the end, God finally did speak to Job. And Job needed to say, Surely I have spoken of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. There was a degree of repentance that Job needed to have in his life. But actually, God says in the end that his intemperate words spoken to God were more righteous in fact, than the, uh, the mealy-mouthed words of so-called comforters who tried to draw some simple little theological pattern to explain why Job had suffered and never really agonized with the mystery of it. Truly righteous, patient people are passionate in their interaction with God, in their commitment to speak for God, always, 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 though, letting God be God, not cursing him as Job was tempted to do, not taking history into their own hands, but living passionate, patient lives. And Job's story, says James, tells us why they can do that. We can do that because we have so many examples of how finally God works history out. You see uh, in verse 11, you have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Finally, Job was blessed more than he'd ever been blessed more in his life. That was not a promise that everyone who suffers will get that. It was a cameo picture, a little promise in advance for us that God is quite capable and in fact passionately concerned to do that for his people. Christian people now who live in the light of eternity must often wait till that eternity, till it comes true. But you only need to go back through the pages of Scripture to see God again and again does that, so we can wait. That's what James is saying. We know what God finally brings about, so we can wait. Now, it may be that you live with a personal problem in your life. It may be that you live with a scar on your life that you know is not going to go away, or certainly hasn't so far. It may be that you... Uh, Find yourself constantly blaming those who are responsible. Or if there's no individual in this uh, world who is responsible, perhaps you even turn and blame God. And you say, God, at least why don't you sort it out? Well, sometimes he does. But, says James, sometimes... We have to wait. 
The Bible is full of assurances of God's compassion and mercy. The Bible says, wait for eternity. Yes, wait passionately. Don't, don't suppress those emotions. Don't, don't uh, feel that uh, uh, like, a, like a good Muslim, you just have to say, the Lord has willed and, and uh, do nothing more about it. You may need to cry out to God. But in the end, says James, we have to learn to trust he who is compassionate and merciful and wait. Now, history is littered with people who have had to wait for a long time. Maybe that you, for instance, have um, great ambitions as to what you would like to see happen in this church. A friend of mine, um, his father was a pastor in French-speaking Canada. And his father preached in a little church, a little church plant for years and years and years and saw no fruit. He uh, told the story, I remember once, of how when he was a child, his father didn't come down to Sunday lunch after the morning service. Um, and uh, he went upstairs. And he came upon his father in the, in the bedroom, kneeling and praying and weeping and saying, why, God, are you not saving souls? That man had to weep like that for decades. It was actually when he was nearly retired, nearly at the end of his life, suddenly in that area, the Holy Spirit just, just converted hundreds. There was a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The church grew dramatically. He had more people than he knew what to do with. But that man had waited all his life for that. Or take the example of uh, uh, the country of Cambodia. The first Protestant missionaries in Cambodia went into Cambodia in the late 19th century and they saw no fruit virtually. There was as good as no church, no uh, evangelical church in Cambodia until the 1960s. And then in the 1960s, suddenly, there was a great outpouring of God's Holy Spirit there as well. And thousands got converted. There's a, there's a great book written by Don Cormack. Um, he's speaking at uh, Freshbrook Evangelical Church on Tuesday, but you're not allowed to go because you've got to come and do the uh, visitation here. But read the book. Read the book and you will see an amazing work of God that has gone on throughout Cambodia. Through the killing fields, virtually the whole of the church was wiped out in those days under Pol Pot. But it has sprung up again and is growing at an enormous rate right now. But the people who planted the seeds died before they saw anything. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine going to somewhere all your life, there is no church and you die seeing no church? Yet God has got it in his hands. God used their lives. They can see that from eternity now. We can see that from where we are. The Lord is compassionate and merciful, says James. Wait patiently, passionately. Wait. So living with eternity very much in view then helps us to wait. Then James says, living with eternity very much in view affects the things that we ask for in this life actually come to one of the most uh, disputed passages in, in the letter of James, in verses 14 to 16. Is any one of you sick? 
he should call the elders to the church to pray over him and anoint him with the oil with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Picture that James describes is reasonably clear. That much is not disputed. There's a sick person in the church and that person calls the leaders of the church, the elders together. They pray with that person. They anoint that person with oil. It's common practice in, in, uh, in many churches and has been practiced in this church. The dispute comes over what happens next. See, one group of interpreters of this passage say that we should, uh, we should with great confidence expect healing. They quote verse 15. They say, the Lord will raise him up. If there is no healing, they say, it's actually for one of a few simple reasons. First of all, he says, we may not have, uh, they say we may not have had enough faith. See how James says the prayer offered in faith makes the sick person well. Or if it's not uh, our weakness in our faith, perhaps it is unconfessed sin, they say. James tells us, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Or if it's not unconfessed sin on the part of the sick person, then perhaps it's lack of righteousness on the part of the, uh, the leaders in the church because, James says, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. But all of those uh, uh, reasons have one thing in common. It's our fault if there's not healing. We can expect healing, such people say. And if not, we need to look to ourselves and say that it's our, uh, it's our fault. Well, on the surface of it, that does seem to be a natural reading of this passage. But I think there is a whole raft of problems with that simple solution. For a start, if you think about it, it means that every Christian who dies of illness is a victim of their own sin or the sins of the leaders of their church. Very interesting that those who preach with great confidence about healing actually are very quiet about it at the funerals of their church members. Sadly, uh, I'm afraid there are charlatans in the church who whip church members up, sincere Christians, to an altogether naive expectation of healing in order to bolster their own egos very often. It is atrocious. It's a, it's a sin against the Holy Spirit. It is a terrible thing, and it happens in churches. New Testament is quite clear that, uh, that sometimes sickness is associated with specific sins. Now, Paul, for instance, in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, tells the Corinthians that their casual attitude towards the communion table has uh, uh, caused some people even to die. He tells an invalid, uh, Jesus tells an invalid, to uh, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you in John chapter 5, verse 14. Sometimes illnesses are associated with specific sins. But there are several references to sick Christians in the New Testament with no indication that it is associated with sin or, or faithlessness. Timothy, for instance, is told to take a little wine for his stomach and his frequent illnesses in 1 Timothy 5, 23. Or Trophimus is uh, left sick in Miletus in 2 Timothy 4 verse 20. So on. There are lots of sick Christians in the New Testament with no indication that there is necessarily any personal sin associated with that. Actually, Jesus uh, nails it completely. In John chapter 9, he comes across a man who was born blind and people who thought that there must be some specific sin associated with it said, well, was it this man or was it his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus says, neither this man nor his father sinned. 
There is no simple relationship, says the New Testament, between unhealed illness and sin. We need to be clear about that. Well, another group of people then say, well, these people who preach such confidence about healing and put such a burden on uh, uh, ordinary Christians saying that it's their fault if they're not healed should be opposed. And we should oppose them by actually reading uh, James in a way that indicates he has no confidence at all in healing, no expectation of healing in this passage. Rather, they, they, these people say, the key thing is that the person needs to be reassured of the forgiveness of sins in this passage. It talks about confessing our sins. It talks about being forgiven, doesn't it? Well, a close reading of the text does actually support to a certain extent this much more uh, hesitant expectation of, uh, of healing. James uh, uh, says, the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. In, uh, what is it, verse uh, 15. But actually, that's not entirely a fair translation. Literally, James says, the prayer offered in faith will save the person. And sometimes that word save could be used of healing, but equally well, it, it is often used in the New Testament of eternal salvation, eternity again that we've been, we've been thinking about. Actually, there were perfectly good words that James could have used to uh, uh, be absolutely clear he was talking about healing, but he doesn't. He uses actually a much more ambiguous word. And then when he says that the Lord will raise him up, he is being actually uh, uh, more ambiguous than may be immediately obvious. Will that person be raised from their bed? Or will that person be raised up on the last day in eternity? It's a common phrase amongst uh, uh, Jews when they were talking about the resurrection of the dead that they will be raised up. Perhaps after all, then, James is not expecting miraculous healing. Some people uh, uh, counter that by saying in verse 16 that uh, James seems to be saying quite specifically that you can expect healing, even demand it. Confess your sins to each other, pray for each other, he says, so that you may be healed. Surely that makes our expectation of healing very strong. But actually it's not as strong as you might think. There were, there were various ways that you could, uh, you could indicate the connection between praying and healing as you can in the English language. You could, uh, you could say, pray in order that you may be healed drawing a very tight, uh, tight connection between the two. Or you could, you could draw a much looser connection, pray for your healing. And it's actually that looser connection that James, uh, James uses in this text. Again, I, I have to say, I'm a bit frustrated with the NIV. I think it's far too strong to translate that, pray so that you may be healed. It's much more pray for your healing here. But I think we have to say that the complete sceptics cannot win the day. James is, uh, we cannot obliterate every expectation of healing from this text. It seems to me a middle line is what we need to, to walk in our understanding of this passage. Neither having such a, a naive confidence in healing that uh, we end up making people feel terribly guilty that they have sometime, somehow uh, uh, failed themselves if they are not healed, nor the complete skeptic's reluctance to expect any healing at all. Now, it seems to me that James is, James is expecting us to approach the subject of healing in this way. 
He's expecting us, first of all, to ask seriously whether our illness is associated with sin. There's such an emphasis on confessing our sins, on, a, on, the, on seeking forgiveness here. We cannot escape that implication, I think. Sometimes, as the New Testament says elsewhere, sometimes there is a tight connection between some sin in our lives and some suffering that we are enduring. We need, if we are suffering from an unexplained illness perhaps, to search our hearts seriously and ask the Lord that he would forgive us. But, says James, we can be absolutely confident that as we confess our sins and as we ask for forgiveness, we are forgiven in eternity. There is no doubt about that. And if the illness is associated with that sin, that illness will disappear at that moment. Moreover, says James, we can pray for our healing, whether it's associated with sin or not, and God is quite capable of doing it. Those things we can have total assurance of. But he is much more reticent, I think, about giving us assurance that we will be healed. Life is far too complex for that. So often the general fallenness of the world has uh, damaged the whole of the world and all of mankind in such a way that this side of eternity healing will not occur. We just need to accept that. If we have a clear conscience before God, that we have confessed our sins and he has forgiven our sins. And we can face whatever comes our way in terms of our physical health, knowing we are absolutely secure in eternity. Do you see how it affects what we ask for? Because James has eternity very much in his mind, he is not focusing all his attention on healing. He is focusing our main hopes on God's mercy and forgiveness in eternity. And you can have that, he says. And you may get an early glimpse of that, that ultimate healing which is every Christian's assurance in being healed now. But everyone does. There is no absolute assurance that our mortal bodies will be raised up in this life. One thing, though, makes our prayers far, far more powerful. It's having lives which are close to God. Lives that know God. Lives that live for God. The prayer, he says at the end of verse 16, of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Then he goes on to use as an example here, Elijah, verse 17. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and heavens gave rain. The earth produced its crops. A man just like us, he says. We think of him as an Old Testament superhero. But James says, intrinsically in who he was, he was just like us. No special magic about him. No way that he could control the weather in that way. Actually, if you study his prayers closely, it's uh, not so much a matter of Elijah getting some idea in his mind and then, then bullying God by uh, the amazing force of his personality until God does something. No. There's a complex interaction between Elijah sensing through his concern and passion for God's glory what God wanted him to say and pray for. And then Elijah having that extraordinary privilege of praying for it and seeing it happen and seeing God do great miracles so that it didn't rain for three and a half years. And then finally when Elijah prayed again, it rained. Now, here's a man who was just like us, but yet who was close to God, who knew God, 
who prayed prayers throughout his life that were passionate about God's glory. And he says, those prayers get answered. So you think you're an insignificant person. So you think your ministry in this church is at an end. So you think you have so few gifts in this world, you could never possibly do anything for God. He says, Elijah was just like us. And yet he was so close to God, he loved God so passionately that he sensed what God wanted him to pray. And he was involved in seeing a whole nation affected. That can be our privilege, he says. If we live lives for God, if we are passionately concerned for God, it affects what we ask for to live for eternity. That's what James says. It affects the way we wait, remember? It affects what we ask for. Well, how do you personally need to respond to this whole letter of James, then? Ed, eternity. I rather sense that I might get a nasty surprise when I meet God face to face. If you're not yet a true Christian this morning, then go to God and seek his face. Seek his forgiveness. Seek that new life that James says floods into our hearts when we know we are forgiven. Seek that and do not give up. This letter of James may be a manual of how to live the good life, but it is about as useless as a manual on the Starship Enterprise to an owner of a Ford Escort if you are not converted. That's what the James says. We need that new life in Christ. Seek it. Maybe that you know and have a confidence that you are a Christian, but you know as well, I am not as much of a new person as I should be. I know I don't live with eternity as bright before me as I ought to be. Maybe you feel that you're going to go away feeling guilty. Now, I don't want to advise you to go away feeling particularly guilty. I want you to go away feeling impoverished. Because if you are a Christian this morning, and yet you're not living this new life, you're not living with, with delight in that eternity that is before us, then it's like, like living all your life on a mound of treasure and being penniless yourself. It's like uh, being a blind person in an art gallery. It's like uh, 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 living as a dead person. when actually you have life in you. There are so many Christians who impoverish themselves because they do not cultivate that new life. Do that, and you will not be disappointed. There is nothing so satisfying as a strong confidence in God's eternal compassion and mercy and love for us. You know, some of you may have heard of the great theologian at the turn of the century, B.B. Uh, B. Warfield. At the age of 25, Warfield married a uh, lady called Annie Pierce Kinkeed. On their honeymoon, she was struck by lightning and permanently paralyzed. During uh, 39 years, Warfield cared for his paralyzed wife. He was uh, seldom able to leave the home for more than two hours because of her needs. But listen to Warfield's thoughts on Romans 8:28, where God said, where Paul says, "God works for the good of those who love him." Quite extraordinary. The fundamental thought is the universal government of God. All that comes to you is under his controlling hand. 
A secondary thought is the favour of God to those who love him. If he governs all, then nothing but good can befall those to whom he would do good. Though we are too weak to help ourselves and too blind to ask for, for what we need and can only groan in unformed longings, he is the author in us of these very longings. And he will so govern all things that we shall reap only good from all that befalls us. A man whose every hope of his marriage almost had been dashed for all his life. All things that we shall reap only good from all that befalls us. Here's a man who learned to wait patiently and passionately. Here is a man who found that the very things that he prayed for were changed by his belief in eternity. He was not eternally disappointed, a bitter man, because his wife was not healed. He was a man who was convinced that everything God was doing for him would reap only good. Can you imagine that? That transforms lives. And it's that transformation that James is looking for. Let's pray. Lord, show us your glory, we pray. We cannot live without assurance of your goodness. We cannot be patient without assurance that one day you will resolve everything for only good. We cannot pray aright until we see our lives with the perspective you see them. So show us your glory. Fill us with eternal joy and satisfaction, we pray. That we, as James instructs us, would be able to count it all joy through all of life's circumstances. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.